Glorious Sabbath to all our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Welcome to all our guests that are here today. We have 250 in attendance, and thank you, Ladies Quartet, for that special music, No Night There, uh, giving us a vision of the New Jerusalem, so looking very beautiful. Mr. Lee just uh, handed me note, this note. Mrs. Meredith came home this morning, so she's no longer in the hospital, uh, but is resting, so please continue to prayer your prayers for uh, Dr. and Mrs. Meredith. We all had a very inspiring Feast of Tabernacles. Living Church of God members met in 48 festival sites in 32 countries. So God's people are certainly out of the salt of the earth, scattered all around the world. And we thank God for his protection. We thank God for his inspiration, for what was a very challenging trip for my wife and me and going to three different feast sites, but very fulfilling and rewarding and Everyone was just saying, this is the best feast ever. Uh, and when I asked someone here at the office, said, what was the highlight of the feast? And this young lady said, immediately, without hesitation, the inspired sermon. So God did inspire the feast around the world, and we're very thankful for that inspiration. However, on the world scene, we still have natural disasters. Thousands of men, women, and children are homeless because of those disasters of floods, fires, and hurricanes. And then there are, of course, the stress with the financial global crisis around the world. And then, of course, we have our own personal tests, our own personal trials. Dr. Meredith has exhorted us to grow in faith as we face the trials currently and as we face those trials in the future, that we need to be closer to God and to Christ. I told you before, years ago, how I was discouraged and somewhat depressed in the fall of 1959. I'd just gotten out of the Army, and uh, on the world scene, the two superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union. And there was continual threat of nuclear war between them, and in fact, I had that nightmare in my own mind that I was just going to see a nuclear holocaust that would destroy the whole earth, destroy me, destroy my family, destroy my nation between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was called MAD, M-A-D, Mutual Assured Destruction, that was the preventive measure. The idea was that if the United States were to attack the Soviet Union or vice versa, there would be an automatic response, and everyone would be mutually destroyed, thus mutually assured destruction. So I was not very happy at that time, but I did hear a radio program called The World Tomorrow. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong, on that program, gave some hope when I had no hope. I turn to John, the 14th chapter, John 14. My case might have been a little different because I had not heard growing up that Jesus Christ was coming back to this earth. I just had, as a little boy, visions of going to heaven or avoiding a hellfire. So I had a very simplistic approach. But when I heard Mr. Armstrong talk about Christ's return, as he read in John the 14th chapter, it gave me hope. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, here in the New King James, it has, 
in the margin, literally dwellings. So there are dwelling places. And if you've seen any of the models of the Ezekiel temple or the temple in Jerusalem, you'll see that there are actually dwelling places in the wall of the temple. And then there are other dwelling buildings right outside that, as described in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. But they were symbolic, of course, of the office of the priest that dwelt within the temple dwelling. In my father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That was news to me. I didn't know that Christ was coming back to this earth and that we were going to join him. And that was good news to me. It was a promise that Jesus Christ made, and it's a promise that he will keep. That promise is also a prophecy. In many cases, prophecies and promises are synonymous. In some cases, of course, prophecies are conditional. Uh, Some prophecies are unconditional. But how can we have faith in those promises? How can we have assurance in those promises? The next verse gives us that assurance. Verse 5, when Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ is the assurance of those promises. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Turn to Isaiah, the 46th chapter, and we have further assurance of God's prophecies and promises. Isaiah, the 46th chapter, starting in verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. It's a little difficult for some of us, perhaps, to realize that God has this 7,000-year plan. And as even we heard in the special music, No Night There, God's new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven. That's a part of His plan. It's sure. And as you read several times in the prophets, God says, Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In the King James, or the mouth of the Lord has spoken in the New King James Version. God has said it. It is sure it is going to come to pass. Verse 11. In this case, he's referring to a historic event, calling a bird to pray from the east, that no, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So God's word stands. He is... He assures us that what he says is going to pass, come to pass, will come to pass. We must search for the true treasures. God has given us incredible promises throughout his word. Many of those treasures that we seek are precious 
and priceless promises of God. And that's the title of the sermon today, God's Precious Promises. How many promises are there in the Bible? According to one researcher quoted on BibleInfo.com, there are 3,573 Bible promises. Well, even if you say there are only 2,000, there are only 1,000 uh, promises in the Bible that apply to me. And I was just thinking, if you were to claim 1,200 promises out of all the promises in the Bible, and you claimed one of those promises every day, 365 days a year, it would take you more than three years to claim 1,200 promises in the Bible if you claimed one a day for those, those three years. One of the biggest lessons of life is learning where the true treasures are hidden. We need to seek those true treasures of life, as Jesus said in John 6.63. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They are the true treasures. Take a look at Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew 13. And here we find the pearl of great price. We find that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the great treasure. Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All of us have been in that position. We realized we needed to count the cost. What did it cost? What are we investing our lives in? We're giving up everything for the kingdom of God, like treasure hidden in the field. Verse 45, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yes, the pearl of great price. My wife and I were traveling throughout uh, Japan after our feast in uh, Australia in 1981. We were on an English-speaking tour of Tokyo, uh, the last stop was a uh, pearl store, and uh, they gave you a little entrance ticket, and they gave a door prize, and my wife got a door prize, which was a beautiful a little yellow pearl. She gave that to her mother, and after her mother died, she inherited that pearl and still has it today. But the greatest pearls, of course, are the spiritual pearls, the precious pearls of promise that God gives us. When I was a little boy, I used to dream of finding treasures. I mean, (laughs) I thought here in my backyard, there might be some treasure buried there. And often I would even dream of walking along the street and finding a whole roll of coins there on the street somewhere. So I I must have been a real treasure dreamer when I was a, a little boy. When I became an adult, I was intrigued by a story in... The Reader's Digest in January 1965 about the mystery of Oak Island in Nova Scotia. It was popularized by the Reader's Digest, but two boys discovered what amounted to a pirate's money pit. I actually uh, spoke on that in the uh, on a telecast 
uh, back in 19, uh, 2005 called The Promise of God. I gave a telecast by that title. These two boys found a, a block and tackle on a tree and then a depression and started digging and found every 10 feet below a wooden platform. Uh, they abandoned it, came back years later, and then found went all the way down to 90 feet, put in a steel bar, and felt that they had found a treasure chest. But the ingenious pirates, or whoever buried that treasure, had engineered flood tunnels that went out all the way from the center of the island to the shore of the island that, unless you knew the secret, would flood the tunnel for anyone trying to get that treasure. And indeed, it was, was flooded. So people have been digging for many years, well, about 200 years now. They're still trying to find it and still not found it. They found three pieces of gold chain and a part of ancient parchment. So they know there's something something down there. I was very interested in in, uh, following up on that, so I called the manager back in 1976 at Oak Island. His name was Dan Blankenship. Uh, He returned my call and not giving much evidence of, of progress, but he offered me to invest in uh, Oak Island, uh, but I, I declined. These physical treasures, even to this day, remain inaccessible. But God has given us freely, openly, accessibly, wonderful, priceless, precious promises and treasures way beyond our imagination in his Bible, in his word. But we need to identify those treasures. We need to claim those treasures in faith. We've just seen here in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and also like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Turn back to Proverbs, the second chapter. Proverbs, second chapter, starting with verse 1. We need to seek the spiritual treasures. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, and as a little boy, I would really have liked to go and sought treasures. In fact, uh, the very first short story I wrote was titled, uh, why my name is Rich, and uh, the, the story was a fictitious story, but uh, I was in grade school, and I wrote a story about how I visited my aunt's home, and she took me up to uh, my guest room, which was up on the second floor. I put my coat on a coat hook, and the coat hook turned, and a door opened up, and behold, the door went, had a stairway that went down to her kitchen. So we went down to her kitchen. But then I went back up, and, of course, I turned another hook, and another stairway opened up, which went way down below her basement. And down in the basement were treasures of gold and silver, and that's why my name is Rich. So that was my little story way back then. But we are to speak, seek for the spiritual treasures. You seek her as silver, search for her as hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the eternal, verse 5, and find the knowledge of God. 
There are three major elements here, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Verse 6, for the eternal gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. We need to claim those treasures that God gives us. They're spiritual treasures. They're of great price and of great inestimable value. Turn to Luke, the 11th chapter. Luke 11. God's promises are a reflection of his love for you and for me. Luke 11, starting with verse 9. Luke 11, verse 9. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We seek knowledge, wisdom, understanding. We seek God's truth. We seek the precious, priceless promises of God. And sometimes we need to do more than just ask. Sometimes we have to go out and start knocking on doors. And then we have to seek. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? You're asking for bread. If you're of natural affection, you're going to fulfill your son's request. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Luke 11, verse 13, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is one of those priceless promises that God gives. And it shows that his promises are in love that he wants to give to you. But you need to do something, and that's simply to ask. And, of course, we need to ask in faith. Matthew's account, I won't turn there, but Matthew 7, I believe it's verse 11, he says, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So God loves us. His promises are a reflection of his love. Let's take a look at some of the promises that might help us in time of trouble. Let's turn back to uh, Psalm 91. And we've actually sung this in our hymnal from time to time. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Eternal, He is my refuge and my fortress. In my God, in Him I will trust. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. This was quoted in the uh, Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandment movie, as you recall, the time when the uh, death angel's cover was killing all the firstborn of Egypt. Nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Traditionally, this is a uh, psalm of Moses. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the eternal who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. 
No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. So we need to claim God's promises of protection. I pray for protection every day, not only for my wife and me, but for our employees, for God's people. You know, there are so many different categories of promises in the Bible. They said there may be three, two thousand, three thousand promises. Uh, I just went on the uh, internet and looked up, uh, are there any books on the promises of God? Well, yes, there are uh, biblical dictionaries, and there's one uh, that you can buy called All the Promises of the Bible by Herbert Lockyer. I think we might even have that in our Living University Library, All the Promises of the Bible. This is a uh, guidepost uh, little booklet called Bible Promises, God's Pledge to You in Four Great Translations to Help You in Times of Trial. But I'll just share with you some of the categories And you might want to start your own list of precious promises based on categories or your own experience in digging for those spiritual treasures. Table of contents. When you worry. So those are quite a few promises on what you do when you worry. When you doubt. When you fear. When you grieve. When you envy. When you fail. When you are sick, when you are lonely, when you are angry, when you are tempted, when you are oppressed, when you are rejected, when you are weak, when you are depressed, when you feel guilty, when you need guidance. So again, the Bible just has thousands of those promises that can help you, and as we face the future trials and tests, we need to bank on those promises, claim those promises, trust in God's promises, as we just read here in Psalm 91, that He will protect us. Turn to Second Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Second Corinthians 10. Do you have the assurance that what God has promised that He's going to be able to give to you? 2 Corinthians 10, and we find this characteristic about God. That's 1 Corinthians 10, sorry, I have the wrong reference in my notes. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, one of those memorization verses. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. You may not uh, have that underlined in your Bible, but you should. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with a temptation, but with a temptation, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Sometimes we just focus on escape and not the part about being able to bear it. But God will give us the ability to bear those temptations and those tests and those trials. Let me turn back to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, Deuteronomy 7. We honor God's name when we come to Sabbath services. We worship Him. I think about Proverbs, I believe it's 18.10. The name of the eternal is a high tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. God's name is a refuge. It's a high tower. 
That's Proverbs 18.10, just one of my favorite scriptures that I think about sometimes when I'm honoring God's name. Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. Deuteronomy 9. Here Moses is talking about uh, God's love for his people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore know that the eternal your God, he is God, the faithful God. Yes, God is faithful. He's also the faithful God, so you can have trust in all of his promises, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. But God is the faithful God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. But the question for us is, are we faithful? God is faithful to us. We have that assurance. But are we faithful towards God? Are we faithful servants? I'll just uh, read the Scripture. Don't turn there. But Luke 19, verse 17. You know, the parable of the minas. Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. God expects us to be faithful. He is a faithful God. He expects us to be faithful. We had uh, one of the sermons, Are You a Faithful Steward? I don't have the number of that sermon offhand. And let's understand Galatians 5.22, that faithfulness is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. Faithfulness. Are you steadfast? Are you true? Are you loyal? Are you faithful to God? God promises to help us in times of trouble. He is faithful, so we must be faithful. What other assurance do we have that God's promises that they are true? Luke, the 24th chapter, if you'll turn back there. God encourages our faith by giving us overwhelming evidence of his fulfilled promises. What promises did he fulfill? Luke, the 24th chapter, gives us a hint of some of those. Luke 24 and verse 44. Jesus had just given them a broiled fish. Notice that verse 42 and, and verse 43. He took it and ate in their presence. So even after Jesus' resurrection to immortality, he was able to manifest himself in the physical flesh and ate broiled fish. So just remember that once you're a spirit being, you can manifest yourself as a physical being if you want you know, prime rib, or if you want uh, fish. He took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So the tripartite division, the three-part division of the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms being the first book, of the writings, or the Tanakh, as it's called, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Law of the Prophets, the writings. But the point is here, 
that he said all these things must be fulfilled which were written concerning him in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. In our booklet written by Dr. Douglas Winnale, The Real God, Proofs and Promises, proof number five he gives is fulfilled prophetic promises. He writes this, The record of history, as well as of world events today, confirms the incredibly accurate prophecies recorded in the Word of God. The Bible is inspired by an all-powerful supernatural God. Its prophecies are not merely the product of mortal men trying to formulate a philosophy or religion. Scriptures fulfill prophetic promises demand an explanation. They cannot simply be ignored or explained away. The God who inspired those prophecies and brought them to pass has to be real. And then proof number six in the booklet, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. Proof number six is answered prayer. And most of you have proven that to yourself. I hope there's no one in here who has not experienced answered prayer. It is a proof of God. Dr. Winnell writes, Another dramatic proof of God is that he fulfills his promises of answered prayer. For those who do not believe in God and have never prayed, this is merely a matter of doubt and skepticism. No, God has fulfilled his promises. He's fulfilled prophecies. In fact, the whole strain that Jesus talked about of those prophecies concerning me, as he says here in Luke 24:44, there are estimates up to 300 or 400 prophecies, Old Testament prophecies referring to the Messiah. It's called the Messianic strain in the Old Testament. In a book titled Science Speaks by Peter Stoner, he examined the probability, statistical probability, of one person fulfilling just 48 of those prophecies. Now, there are over 300 of those prophecies, but he just wanted to take a look at the probability of the fulfilling, by chance, of 48 of those prophecies. For that to happen by chance would be 1 in 10 followed by 157 zeros. As someone calculated, that would be like trying to find one specific electron out of all the electrons in all the known universe on the first attempt. So even just 48 prophecies, statistically impossible for all of those Old Testament prophecies to be be fulfilled by chance in Christ's life. So God does give us encouragement by giving us overwhelming evidence of his fulfilled promises. The next part is a little challenging here because there are so many wonderful prophecies and promises. I am tempted to go through quite a few, but we'll take a sampling of some of those priceless, precious promises. Let's turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. There are physical promises, that is, promises for physical benefits. There are promises for spiritual benefits. But let's take a look one here for long life, which is a physical benefit. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. What is the first commandment with promise? Your children should know. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, notice this, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Of course, that's from the fifth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So God promises long life. Now, we don't judge those who've had shorter life. Jesus had only 33 and a half years of life. What other physical promises are there? I won't turn there, but you know Malachi 3, verse 10, that God will bless the tither, that He will open the windows of heaven, that there won't be enough room to receive those blessings. That's an amazing promise of God. And even the festival tithe, I won't take time to turn there, but I'll just give you the reference, Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 through 15. And then the tithe for the widows, that if you have kept that third tithe year, you can claim a blessing, a special blessing. And that's Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 through 15. You want to turn now to Philippians 4, verse 19. Philippians 4. I've shared that story with you, so I won't repeat it, but you know the story of Mr. Herbert Armstrong and the crying baby, as he brought out in his autobiography that the baby was crying, and Mr. Armstrong told Loma, go get uh, some milk. And she said, well, you don't have any milk. Uh, Herbert, go down and buy some at the store. Well, we don't have any money. Well, it costs 10 cents for a gallon of milk or a bottle of milk. And so they didn't have any. But Mr. Armstrong, as you know the story, went to uh, the bathroom in a private place and prayed and claimed this promise of Philippians 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. As Mr. Armstrong prayed that, he said, now the baby's crying, the baby needs that milk now. We need the ten cents to buy the milk now. So just then, uh, Beverly, his daughter, saw a rag and bottle man, they called him, out the front, uh, by the front of the house, called him in, and he thought, oh, well, I've got some old magazines or something. Surely this man will buy something to here we have in the, in the basement. So I went down the stairs under the house in the basement, and Mr. Armstrong had a pile of magazines, and, and the uh, junk man said, I'll give you 10 cents for that pile of magazine. Mr. Armstrong said, oh, well, what about a dollar? <laughs> he realized, no, just 10 cents. He'd asked God for 10 cents, and he got the 10 cents. And, of course, uh, one of the girls went down to the store and got the, the milk. So God answered that prayer quickly. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And maybe after Sabbath services day, you may want to share with one another some of your answered prayers. And uh, every once in a while, I ask God for encouragement. And at the feast in Chattanooga, uh, my wife had a, a brooch that was on her jacket. Someone had given to her. And uh, for some reason, I she left the jacket in the car. I took the jacket to our hotel room there, the Chattanooga Fee site. And when she found it, uh, she said, oh, the brooch is gone. Where is it? And she said, well, the last time I had it was in the meeting hall here in, at the Chattanooga Choo Choo Station. So she went over to the meeting hall and... Uh, uh, I 
she said, pray about it. Oh, okay, I'll pray about it. You know, Father, please help us to find the missing brooch. So I walk over to the meeting hall. She's inside the auditorium with about four ushers. I think Bruno may have been one of them, looking for this brooch. I walked up up the stairs to the front of the auditorium, and there, right in front of me, on the stairs, was the missing brooch. I picked it up. I really won points with my wife. But here, God, how would I ever find a brooch that my wife had lost? Here it was, right on the steps leading up to the auditorium. You know, I'm sure all of you have answered prayers like that, that you can encourage one another. But I often ask God for encouragement, and he gives me those encouragements. Turn to Psalm, well, no, let's turn to Matthew 21, 22. Matthew 21, 22. One of my colleagues back at uh, television when we were doing the World Tomorrow telecast in Pasadena was from a family of uh, small people. I think his sister was five feet one, and I think his... uh, Mother was maybe five feet two, but as a boy, he knew that he might just end up being five feet one or five feet two. But he remembered this somehow. Someone pointed out this scripture to him as a boy, Matthew 22, if I've got this correct, Matthew 21, uh, verse 22. Jesus said, Matthew 21, verse 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And so this boy prayed when he was a little boy that he could be six feet two inches, even though the rest of his family was five feet one and five feet two. He grew up to be six feet two inches. And I remember his giving that speech in one of our speech classes. Psalm 37.4 is another one of those special promises dear to my heart. And... uh, perhaps to some of yours as well. And I still ask God for some of the desires of my heart to such a special promise, and I focused on that in the sermon on uh, persevere in prayer, so I won't repeat that. My prayer to go to Jerusalem, which God answered as a desire of my heart, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the eternal, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So God promises to give us our need, and we say, oh, well, he doesn't promise to give you whatever you want. He promises to give you a need. Oh, he does go beyond that. He does promise to give you the desires of your heart if you delight yourself in the Lord. And verse 5, commit your way to the eternal trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And even verse 3 fits into this precious promise. Trust in the eternal and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. On the way here, my wife and I were hearing, we had a CD of one of Mr. Herbert Armstrong's old radio broadcasts on on healing. He said, you know, faith is required from the time you make the request until the request is fulfilled. And if a loved one dies and is not healed, you think 
that God has not kept his promise. But Mr. Armstrong goes on to say, faith is required until the request is fulfilled. And that request may be in the resurrection when that person is healed. Mr. Armstrong said, nowhere in the Bible does it tell you that God will heal you instantaneously, even though there are examples of it, and God has healed instantaneously some of our people who have been anointed by God's ministers. But God wants you to exercise faith. And when it comes to claiming promises, it means that you must trust God to fulfill that promise in His way and in His time. And oftentimes it's not anywhere near the way we would think that that request was going to be fulfilled or that promise to be fulfilled. It's in a remarkable, unusual way. And I'm sure that many of you can testify to that. But here is one of those other special promises. Psalm 37.4, God will give you the desires of your heart. He also promises wisdom and knowledge. We already read that in Proverbs 2, but also Proverbs 8 is the personification of wisdom chapter, which you'll want to read. And he says that wisdom is precious like rubies, more valuable than silver, more valuable than gold. So you pray for the gift of wisdom, which God promises there in James the third chapter, that we're to seek the wisdom that is from above, that's first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, and without hypocrisy. First Corinthians, the tenth chapter, take a look at a few other special promises. We don't think we already read that one, that God will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. Let's take a look. We read that one. Go to Luke 21. Luke, the 21st chapter, and uh, verse 12. Luke 21 and verse 12. We've been admonished to have the faith in facing our trials, the trials that will come upon this nation and around the world. But Jesus gives this promise in Luke 21. And verse 12, after all the earthquakes and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs, Luke 21, verse 12, but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore settle it in your in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives, friends. They will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. In other words, you're going to be in the resurrection. You are in the book of life. You have eternal life, and this life is in his Son, it says in 1 John 5, verse 11 and verse 12. He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. That's 1 John 5, verse 11 and 12. Luke 21 and verse 19. By your patience possess your souls. 
And so as we go treasure hunting for these pearls of promise, we realize that the fulfillment of our requests may require patience, it requires faith, it requires perseverance. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, probably one of the promises we would least request. But it's one that's very vital to our spiritual growth. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Well, actually, Jeremiah did pray that. Correct me, O God, not in your judgment, not in anger, but with judgment, lest I be brought to nothing. And so even Jeremiah prayed for correction, and I hesitate to pray for correction. And every time I do pray, I get corrected. I pray for correction, but I pray for, gent- for gentleness or grace and mercy and help me to learn, uh, you know, so it's not too painful. But nonetheless, God promises that he's going to give us correction, and the Scripture is inspired for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. I think you all know that. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 4. You have not resisted, yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And so we are God's children as long as we are willing to be corrected and take correction. And it is a little difficult for those who do the correcting sometimes because someone, I know I've been corrected and I wonder what... Where are you coming from? Please give me some examples. Give me some uh, ex- uh, citations of what I did wrong and how I did it so I can understand what I'm doing wrong and how I'm doing it wrong. And that, So it's, it's helpful to be able to help your sister or your brother see where he or she needs to make changes in his or her life, but be able to do it in a way that's uh, understandable. 1 John, the first chapter, 1 John 1. So God gives us wonderful physical blessings. And, of course, he chided his audience in Matthew, the sixth chapter, Oh, you little faith. You know, God provides, clothes the fields of the grass, the fields with grass, and uh, the flowers are more beautiful than Solomon's robe. Oh, you of little faith. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, God promises us physical blessings, but he also gives us those incredible spiritual blessings. The greatest, perhaps, is that of forgiveness. So he tells us in verse 9 of 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we see, of course, that Cleansing is from the Christ's blood, which is mentioned here in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
God gives us the power to overcome as well. Turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Ephesians 5. God's Feast of Tabernacles, last great day, and all of the festivals reveal God's plan of salvation for mankind. And part of that plan requires that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It requires that we overcome our human nature and put out the leaven of malice and wickedness and replace it with the leaven of unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 17, gives us the promise of the power to overcome. Ephesians 5.17, Therefore be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. No, that is, we're reading God's Bible, God's Word, day by day. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's God's will. And if we ask anything according to His will... We know that we have the petitions that we require of Him. That's 1 John 5, I think, verse 14. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So God wants us to be filled with His Spirit. It's the Spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, we have the spiritual power in Ephesians 6 chapter. You're familiar with that. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And we put on the whole armor of God. He provides it, but we have to put it on. And it reminds me of the song, of course, the old hymn, Standing on the Promises. I'll just read the words. I won't attempt to sing it. it, But uh, standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to Him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. I even sing that sometimes around around the house. So we're standing on the promises of God. We have a telecast coming up. On Sunday, November 10th, so just a few weeks from tomorrow, uh, called Persevere in Prayer. Actually, I gave the sermon here, Persevere in Prayer, and then made a telecast by the same title, Persevere in Prayer. And I'll just list these uh, promises that I give in the telecast. Uh, You may not be able to write them all down, but can watch the telecast and maybe get it then. But I... I say this in the telecast about God's promises. God has promised to answer our prayers. Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. God has promised to fulfill our needs. We already looked at that, Philippians 4, verse 19. God has promised to guide our lives, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. He has promised us long life if we honor our father and mother. We read that in Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3. He has promised us to give, he's promised to give us the desires of our heart if we delight in him. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. We read that. He's promised to give us peace of mind. 
Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. We did not read that. Be anxious for nothing, but with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're in a society with very many troubled minds. I mean, uh, one was telling me just uh, yesterday, I had a visitor who was very well acquainted with uh, one of the false prophets' uh, leadership. He said he's a, he's a sociopath. I won't tell who he's talking about, but nonetheless, uh, mental health is a big issue in the United States and in many places around the world. But God wants us to have sound-mindedness. And if we think on those things that Philippians 4.8 talks about, Mr. Partian's favorite verse, or one of them, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. So sometimes when I'm troubled, I try to think of all those lovely scenes that I've seen around the world, the sunsets and Big Sandy, the rainbow in Kauai, the beautiful valley in Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland, and some of those other beautiful scenes that I've seen around the world. I think of those things that are lovely. He has promised us peace of mind, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He has promised us the ability to endure trials, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read that in Luke 11, verse 13. Of course, Acts 2, verse 38. He's promised us the gift of His love, Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. And I hope you're praying for that every day. God's purpose is to create in us His perfect character, which is love. He is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. 1 John 4, verse 16. And that love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And He has promised us eternal life. 1 John 2, verse 25. So let's turn to Luke, the 16th chapter. So if we are faithful in our Christian responsibilities, God will give us the true riches. And he actually uses that term here in Luke, the 16th chapter. Luke 16. Yes, as a boy, I dreamed of finding coins and gold and silver and jewels. But God wants us to seek the true riches. Luke 16. And starting with verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, to your trust, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So we need to continue to seek the true riches. There is an awesome guarantee that God gives us that he will fulfill his promises to you. 
pretty deep, but we'll take a look at it. Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews 6. Right before that, he discusses the unpardonable sin in verses 4 through 6. But here, Hebrews, the sixth chapter, starting with verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Yes, we have to persevere. We have to endure to the end. Those are two requirements, faith and patience, to inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That was, of course, Isaac was going to be the promised seed through whom the Messiah was to descend, to be born later on. And so he says he could swear by no greater. Verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to whom the heirs of promise, the immutability, the unchangeability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things. He gave the promise in the first place, which should have been enough, but he went beyond that and swore by himself, gave an oath, and he could swear by no greater, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Just cross the page. So here you have the guarantee that God has promised, made the promise, and then swore further the heirs of promise that he would fulfill those promises. Chapter 7, verse 25, another one of those promises. Therefore, he is able to save, that is the high priest, Jesus Christ, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then chapter 8, right across the column here. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. So we have better promises. We are the heirs of promise. And you say, well, that's just referring to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But we'll see later on here that we are also heirs of promise. Let's turn to uh, Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans 8. We have double, triple assurance of God's promises, or I might even say it's infinite 
We believe God because He is infinite. He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself should be, in the King James Version, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So who are you? You are heirs of God. You are joint heirs with Christ. Turn to Romans, the 11th chapter, Romans 11. And here we realize through the last great day revelation of the hope for all of mankind, those that mainstream Christianity believes are lost or burning in hell, and we know the hope that they have that they'll be in that second resurrection. They'll be in that general judgment. They will have hope of life. So the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans 11 that even the Jews in Rome will be blinded for a purpose. He says in verse 25, Romans 11, for I, do not, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own deceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. But they're blinded now. There was an elect, a remnant of the elect, the Apostle Paul talks about. But he's saying this plan of God is so infinite, so beautiful, so magnificent, magnificent. He describes it here in verse 32 and verse 33. For God has committed them all to disobedience for the present time that He might have mercy on all. When? In the white throne judgment. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out the depth of God's riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How awesome that is. Turn to Galatians, the third chapter. Galatians 3. We are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. God has awesome, deep riches. But notice here, I used to be concerned whether I was a Gentile or an Israelite, and when I read this, it didn't make any difference. He says, Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise is that? That Abraham would inherit the earth. He would have eternal life. And if you are Christ, then you are heirs according to the same promise that was given to Abraham. That should be very reassuring, very encouraging to you. Now notice also in the next chapter, Galatians 4, verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Not only are we heirs of promise, we are children of promise. 
and we are joint heirs with Christ, and we are heirs of God. We are heirs of God's promise. Brethren, that should give you confidence in receiving God's priceless promises. Yes, we do need faith to embrace the promises. We need faith to claim those promises and to receive those promises. But when you take a look at the patriarchs, when you read in Genesis, I believe it's the 19th chapter, when Abraham was negotiating with the Lord and saying, well, should not the Lord of all the earth do what's right? Won't you save Sodom if there are 50 righteous? Yes. What about 40? What about 20? What about 10? So Abraham was very bold in negotiating with God. And we can be very bold when we claim God's promises as well. And it's through faith and patience, as we saw, that we inherit the promises. We're going to have to grow through the trials that we face. This is, of course, the current Living Church News, the September-October 2013 edition. Uh, Dr. Meredith writes, Grow in faith through trials. And he gives the example from Mr. Armstrong's autobiography of the $30,000 headache. He quotes from the autobiography that was a time when $30,000 payment was due for Ambassador College property and he didn't have it. And Mr. Armstrong felt like he wanted to die. He wanted to give up. And then the next morning he would wake up and realize, no, I need to keep persevering. I need to trust God. From the autobiography, Mr. Armstrong writes, I humbly ask God to consider that I was human with human weaknesses and please to give me six months rest from the terrible ordeal. He did. And during the respite, I finally learned how to relax in faith. That's something that's difficult, but it is something we can learn at times once we struggle fervently in prayer with God. We put it in God's hands We put it in his hands and we relax in faith. He did. And during the respite, I finally learned how to relax in faith and shift the weighty burden of it over onto Christ. And at least up to the time of this writing, God has enabled me not only to trust him for the final outcome, but let faith remove the strain and anxiety. When troubles or emergencies arise, we should be tremendously concerned. We should not take these things lightly or nonchalantly. We should be on our toes to do whatever is our part, but trusting God in relaxed faith to guide us and to do His part, which we cannot do for ourselves. We should be freed from destructive strain and worry. But there are some things we cannot do. We have our part to do, but there are some things we cannot do and which we must rely on Him to do wholly for us. It takes wisdom to know which is which. And so we do trust in God. We need that faith in order to receive answered prayers, in order, of course, to receive those promises. Let's turn to 1 John, the third chapter. 1 John 3, I think I may have paraphrased this earlier. 1 John 3. How do we receive those promises? What is required to receive those promises? 1 John 3, verse 22. 
And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Uh, more than 50 of, 50 of us appreciated Mr. Bob Lee's Bible study Wednesday night on pleasing God. We keep God's commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have sermon number 436, How to Please God. Some promises we enjoy now. Some promises are reserved in heaven. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. Verse 13. See, faith must continue to be faith until the request is fulfilled. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, and we could say they died also in the faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ, not having received the promise, the promises. Now, Abraham did not receive the ultimate promise of eternal life. He did receive the promise of Isaac, his son, through whom the Messiah was to descend, or they was to be an ancestor of the Messiah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We need to embrace those promises. We need to claim them boldly. Let's go to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews 4. So we claim those promises boldly, as he tells us here in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You know, sometimes when you read the prayers of David or the arguments or negotiations of Abraham or or Moses... They think, oh, they were too bold in, in, in reasoning with God at that time. No, God says, you know, He can take it. He can take your reasonings and your arguments. It's like David said that, uh, you know, who's going to uh, hear you give? Hear, who's going to hear you give thanks or hear me give thanks if I'm in the grave? You know, in other words, you know, keep me alive. And if you want to keep you want to hear people giving you thanks, you need to keep me alive. He gave God one reason for keeping him alive. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that's God's promise. We come boldly before His throne. We are God's children. Remember who we are. We are heirs of promise. We are the children of promise. We must claim those promises to become more like Christ. Let's turn to First Peter, the first chapter. First Peter one. We started with this particular scripture. I'm sorry. Second Peter, sorry. Second Peter one and verse four. Again that he's called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So it's not just God's given you a, a little deal here, a little promise. These are exceedingly great and precious promises. But what are those promises for? Not only 
all of the wonderful, abundant promises, some of the samplings we've seen in the sermon today, but even more deeply, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And we know our calling. We know why God has called us to create in us His perfect, righteous, holy character. Let's turn back to Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8. And so as we grow bearing those spiritual fruits of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, we become more like Christ. And we have that admonition in Romans the 8th chapter, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Um, in the editorial department, we sometimes have some mistakes and failures, and we call it a Romans 28, the Romans 8:28 moment, because it turns out for something better that may have happened, even though we may have made a mistake in this area. We learn from it. Something good comes out of it. But verse 29 is more significant. For whom we foreknew, he also, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So our whole purpose in life is to become more like Jesus Christ. Dr. Meredith in a sermon last week on what would Jesus really do said that we must be transformed into Christ's character. We must reflect more of Jesus Christ in our life. I have the direct quote here. Quote, we will have to reflect Christ in us, end of quote, when we face the trials and tests of the future. So we must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We must be transformed into his character, and we can do that with the claiming of God's great and precious promises. It says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. The Bible is a gold mine of precious promises. Treasure hunters have been searching for treasure at Oak Island in Nova Scotia for more than two centuries. One, web, one website summarizes that search. Quote, Today the Canadian site is marked by two centuries of attempts to drill for treasure. The unknown contents of the pit continue to draw speculation and seduce the imagination of fortune seekers. Whether it holds Captain Kidd's treasure, Sir Francis Bacon's plays, or even the Holy Grail remains uncertain. The one detail that is known and widely agreed upon is that the Oak Island Mystery Pit remains one of the greatest mysteries on the planet. And yet God has revealed the greatest mysteries to us through His Word, the Holy Bible. God loves us more than we realize. He has greater power to bless us than he re when we realize. Turn to Ephesians, the third chapter, and... The Many of you know this is one of my favorite verses in terms of claiming God's promises, and I probably maybe once or twice a week 
I'll claim this promise and apply it to a particular situation. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We may have a simple request on the one hand, but it may be something significant on the other. It may be a perplexing problem. It may be an insoluble situation. And you ask God to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can think to ask or imagine. Because as we saw earlier in Romans the 8th chapter, that His ways are past finding out. He has the power and the ways that are true riches and treasures, ways that are past finding out. So, brethren, let's boldly claim God's promises. You need to search for those treasures. They are yours. They are precious promises. Turn to Romans, the fourth chapter, Romans 4. And here we see the one of the definitions of faith, because Abraham was an example of trusting God and believing that God would give him the promise. Verse 21, Romans 4, And being fully convinced, that is, Abraham was fully convinced, that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Do you believe whatever God has promised, he's able to perform? And you're praying, of course, that God's will be done. So have the patience, have the faith, have the perseverance as you claim God's promises. Again, Oak Island has always been an intriguing treasure mystery to me. And over the past two centuries, men have spent fortunes and even their lives seeking the treasure at Oak Island. One treasure hunter reportedly stated, quote, I have seen enough to know there is treasure down there and enough to know that no one will ever get it, end of quote. You have before you in your Bible priceless treasures. You have the pearls of promise, the golden guarantees. You have the priceless promises of God. God has given us freely His love, His grace, His Spirit. So thank God for His promises. Thank God for His treasures. And let's rejoice as we diligently claim God's priceless promises.